Welcome to the ACO Show. On today's episode, you'll hear our interview with Dr. Leland Chow. Dr. Chow is a medical director at Allidade and a family medicine physician who also takes care of patients at an innovative clinic in Baltimore that integrates the treatment of psychiatric conditions and substance abuse into primary care medicine. She and Josh talk about some of the barriers and unmet needs in mental health treatment and what it takes to incorporate this important work into primary care practices. Let's get right to it. Welcome to the ACO Show. This is Josh Israel. I'm a physician and a medical director here at Allidate. And today I have the pleasure of talking to my colleague, Dr. Leland Chow. Leland is a regional medical director here. And you've been with the company about a year now? Almost. All right. And what's your background before you got here? Well, I'm a family physician and um, I've worked in the safety net system for most of my career. I have done some work in Medicaid managed care as well as school-based health centers. And even though you are a primary care physician, I was hoping we could talk today about behavioral health issues in primary care. How does that sound? Absolutely wonderful. And what's your experience with it? So I think um, what I'm doing now is uh, sort of the story of behavioral health integration in primary care in some ways. So many years ago, when I was in a federally qualified health center, we did a national project um, beginning to think about how we can link community mental health systems in federally qualified health centers. And what evolved from that project was actually an opportunity to go from a referral-based relationship to co-location. And we also had our own behavioral health staff with us. That whole effort really evolved into how we can integrate a better workflow on a day-to-day basis. So we uh, were able to innovate and um, ultimately had relationships in the community where we were working closely with a very large, well-respected homeless shelter in Baltimore. And they would bring um, patients to us on a regular basis um, for evaluation. And uh, these gentlemen um, had a lot of comorbid conditions. Uh, Many were just as involved and uh, suffered from addiction and complex primary care issues, hepatitis C, HIV, and addiction. And we ultimately realized that uh, we needed to step it up and consider bringing healthcare to them. So that was sort of the uh, the founding idea of co-located care in a housing complex. Um, and as I think we we've appreciated over time, uh, housing is so connected with uh, healthcare. So uh, that's kind of where we were, and uh, we had the benefit of not just housing, but um, educational support and job training and partnerships with uh, other academic institutions in Baltimore, uh, which uh, led to a very, very integrated and connected system. Yeah, you now are part of a pretty interesting, innovative clinic in Baltimore that brings a lot of mental health to it. It's particularly intriguing for me because we speak to many primary care physicians and they feel like they don't have the time, they don't have the training it uh, doesn't reimburse well enough, that there's just no way to do mental health in their clinics. And then I hear you talk about what you're doing up there, and, and you are doing it. So how, how are you pulling that off? Well, I think we all recognize that uh, there is a lot of mental health, and we are doing mental health. And it's 
it's not part of our training, and we uh, probably do not ask the right questions in the right way. Uh, I think the, the training does come from really developing those relationships, and I think I've, I've learned what I've learned from working side-by-side side with behavioral health specialists mm -hmm. and learning their language and learning their approaches and their sensitivities and their, um, their compassion. Um, and my addiction specialists have told me just so much in the way of, you know, uh, how to relate to our patients who have addiction disorders and other comorbidities. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it just evolved. And I, I like to think of our model as more of a flipped behavioral health forward with primary care kind of taking more of a back seat and a supportive role. And when you talk to colleagues, I'm sure there's different answers, but what kind of responses do you get? Do you get people saying, show me how to do that? Or do they say, can I send you these patients so I don't have to handle it? No, they're very curious. I think we're seeing more and more of an appetite for, um, we know it's important because so much of what we do in primary care as our patients get more complex, chronic disease, lifestyle issues. So it goes beyond what we think of, of just depression and anxiety, but more lifestyle change. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's something that um, we all know we can do better, um, but we just don't know how. Yeah. yeah, I'll share some statistics. I don't think these are news to you that 75% of this country is considered to be a shortage area for mental health providers. 55% mm -hmm. uh, of all U.S. counties have no mental health provider whatsoever. That's psychiatrist, psychologist, social yep. worker. Mm -hmm. Of psychiatrists that are out there, only about 50% take Medicare at all. There's a lot to do. I think there has been a greater opportunity to think more broadly about how to uh, form those connections in the community. Uh, our referral team, I think, internally is doing a fantastic job in, in actually uh, putting the list of specialists in front of providers. Uh, we, I feel like we need uh, to connect those dots more closely in our uh, ACOs mm -hmm. by um, thinking about how we can develop better relationships with, I think, one of our most key specialists, and that's behavioral health. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't known, and again, I, the answer is probably different for different people, what the reasons are why there's not more to date. You know, is it really just that they're not personally comfortable with it? You know, I, I don't understand why people wouldn't like psychiatric patients, but I became a psychiatrist. <laughs> and so there's probably, you know, a different inclination there. Um, is it the financial pressures? Um, yeah, I just haven't, I haven't ever really entirely understood it. I think it's fear. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's that space that we're not used to as very somatically trained mm -hmm. uh, providers. The good news is I think there's definitely a little bit more appreciation that the, you know, the, the head is connected to the body. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of movement in mindfulness and trauma-informed care. Um, Value-based care opens big doors in terms of thinking of how you get your team to work better together uh, in more of that collaborative relationship. Right. I think that would apply here where slowing down your day for a patient in the midst of a psychiatric crisis is probably not going to pay for itself with, you know, coding an ENM 99214, but it certainly may pay for itself if you can keep that patient healthier out of the hospital, um, less depressed, more compliant. Absolutely. And one thing that I think is so important about integrating care, um, in addition to just making the services more available, when people refer out to psychiatrists, you know, psychiatrists are not great at communicating. Uh, sometimes it's just concerns about HIPAA or confidentiality, but I do hear all the time that when people do refer out to mental health providers, 
they just never hear another word about the situation. Um, has that been your experience? It has. Um, and so I think we've, because of the, the shortage of, of psychiatry, we try to learn uh, faster. And um, some of us, I think, are, are a lot more comfortable with uh, prescribing antipsychotics, um, but not on a large scale, yeah. right? So we've had to learn the hard way. And because of the sometimes the lack of responsiveness from psychiatry, uh, we've had to really lean on some of our more talk therapy approaches mm -hmm. and do what we could in terms of SSRIs or other medications. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned housing and, you know, social determinants of health are so huge that, you know, I recall a case I was supervising a resident who was describing a patient who was depressed and he was saying the patient's not responding to their medication, so let's talk about what to do. And he described the case and the person had recently gotten divorced, become homeless, was living on the streets in a refrigerator box. And here we are talking about the medications to change. And there was just an absurdity to it that, you know, just to say to the resident, did you hear that he's living in a refrigerator box on the street? Let, let, let's address that before yeah. we, you know, swap Prozac for Zoloft. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And why is mental health so important in particular to value-based care? The driver for cost is enormous. Uh, the The burden of of untreated behavioral health disorders and addiction disorders. It's what drives and social determinants drive patients to the emergency room. And the complications of those chronic neurobiologically-based conditions really uh, impact how patients access healthcare and, uh, and how they're able to even follow through with mm -hmm. a lot of our treatment recommendations. Yeah, these are some very high-cost patients. So speaking of referrals, so what does a good referral from a, uh, from a primary care provider look like? So this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but... In general, referrals from primary care doctors, especially good primary care doctors, are, are tough ones. Psychiatrists don't enjoy them because a good primary care doctor has already done the first two, three, four steps and then refers to the psychiatrist when the patient is refractory to treatment. And those are just harder patients, that people who have failed multiple meds are likely to continue failing medications, you know, whether that is because they have a particularly thorny biologic depression or whether there are social determinants or any number of other factors that are preventing the improvement from the standard treatment. Um, so psychiatrists can often feel like um, when they're working with a good primary care physician, sort of, oh, these patients, they, they just don't get better. Right. You know, psychiatric treatment doesn't even help. Right. Um, but if you're seeing treatment-naive patients, as a primary care doctor or as a psychiatrist, those patients are likely to be the ones who respond to medicine. And as physicians, you know, we really need to be hanging in there with all of our patients, but it's so much more gratifying when you can just fix it and make it all better. Another just good referral is one where we're all working together, where you hear from the primary care doc and you know that it's a loop so that you can make suggestions. Uh, many patients don't want to keep seeing a psychiatrist. They might have an additional copay. You know, if they're in a commercial plan, it might be limited. And so what you really like to do is be able to give advice uh, and be able to see the patient back on an as-needed basis and know you have good communication with each other. So you would normally not put psychiatrists and ACO together. So, or would you? I would if I could. You know, I, I do think that if you could have enough primary care physicians to keep a psychiatrist busy, um, I think that would be a great setup. 
Um, the reality, though, is that the psychiatrists can be a quirky bunch. They they often like being in their in their quiet little office and not part of the hustle and bustle of a of a primary care clinic. Um, these days, if you are a good psychiatrist and uh, don't see yourself as dedicated to population health, you can set up a shingle and take no insurance and uh, you know have a very nice lifestyle for yourself. So the enticements to go into that kind of arrangement where you're seeing Medicare, Medicaid, commercial insurance at a higher clip, um, it's a different set of obligations and, and many just don't do it. It's a different pace. It is. Yeah. And I think that's part of the challenge too is a lot of our behavioral health trained uh, specialists are used to a much slower pace. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's part of the challenge as well is, mm-hmm. is how do you integrate that different um, different pace, different setting, yeah, different Yeah, psychiatrists, they like their day that starts at a certain time and ends at a certain time. You know, a primary care clinic doesn't and, and can't work like that. Uh, it's where the, the collaborative care model comes in where, where somebody has to be lighter on their feet and available when the crisis is happening, not when it's the 50-minute hour start. So I have to say I've been really spoiled. When I work with behavioral health specialists and they are down the hallway and I have a patient who is in crisis and, you know, we're so used to having pathways and protocols to deal with chest pain or some other emergency in the practice. But when you have that patient who is suicidal, who's psychotic, everyone, everything is is just grinds to a, a halt mm-hmm. because we are not trained mm-hmm. in like mental health first aid. Mm-hmm. So what what would you advise practices to think about in that vein of what to do yeah. when you're in a sort of a resource desert of yeah. behavioral health? Yeah, and I'll just back it up a little bit, sort of the some of the policy changes that are trying to address that to some degree. That you know, when I see the new Medicare regulations coming out every year, I, I don't know enough about what's going on inside there, but somebody is thinking about how to fix this because they try a thing, it doesn't work, and they try to ramp it up a little bit more. Uh, you know, for example, in uh, 2017, the collaborative care codes came out, and these were to encourage providers to work with a psychiatrist and a behavioral health care manager on site, and they would start paying for these care management services. And the uptake around the country has been dismal that um, making this an optional uh, but reimbursed procedure just didn't work. And it's a complicated arrangement. Uh, you know, not every primary care doctor has the ability to make a contract and pay an outside psychiatrist or even the, the resources, the, the staffing to, to do that. Um, but that didn't work. It, it, it really hasn't taken off. And so you see new models, the CPC plus track two model, where it's a requirement to have some kind of collaborative care as part of it. And as you know, Maryland has a new model called the CTO, the Care Transformation Organization, which is very akin to the CPC Plus model, um, where it's a requirement. And you can see the gears of somebody in Medicare are turning to try to get this to happen. And at least part of the reason why it doesn't is the sort of case you described, where a patient is in crisis, that's very disruptive, it's very frightening, and providers don't have to see too many cases of that to think, you know, not not on not on my clinic. You know, I've got eight people waiting in the waiting room. Um, you know, it's upsetting. The other patients who are here, my staff doesn't know how to deal with it. Um, but the reality is, these cases are going to happen. If we're going to be dealing with human beings, they're going to have some crises, and they're going to be be hard at times. And I think that definitely underscores the uh, powerful presence of behavioral health in a primary care setting, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, 
chances are there has already been some uh, understanding or appreciation of this is when this happens, come see me. Mm-hmm. And so guess who takes over mm-hmm. and is uh, so trained and confident in uh, being able to de-escalate the situation and I've got it. And then there are these, these other circumstances that I think a lot of my colleagues experience, and that's that door on the the hand on the doorknob mm-hmm. phenomena, where it's you you've dealt with the hypertension, you've dealt with the diabetes, and then it's the oh by the way, doc, um, I am not feeling well, and I think um, I may be suicidal. And so you know you can turn around and sit down and and spend more time, or you can say you know what, I'm sorry that this is happening to you. I would love for you to talk with my my partner who um, is right down the hallway, and I think we can spend a few minutes to talk with you together. And that's a kind of warm handoff situation that um, is so reassuring to the patient and really epitomizes what good integrated behavioral health looks like. Well, what do you see as the, the frontiers of behavioral health integration? You know, where, where can it go next? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think some of it is already happening. We see telebehavioral health happening in a collaborative uh, care model type. And um, there's there's some really exciting things that um, may seem innovative, but I think there are practices who have already done that. And the shared medical appointment is a great example of a group of patients who have similar chronic conditions with probable or diagnose overlay of a mental health disorder. And this is where you tackle it all together. You have the group support of each other. You have the behavioral health specialist as the subject matter expert in the, in the room. And then you have the, the patient's primary care provider who's kind of facilitating the whole situation and looking at the labs and, and documenting at the same time. Uh, I think we're going to see more out of the exam room, the bricks and mortar uh, practices where there may be more community health, uh, behavioral health integration in community settings and faith-based settings um, where there's so much influence on, um, on uh, uh, patient behavior and, and access to health care. We're seeing some mobile integrated uh, opportunities where uh, you have the crisis intervention folks in behavioral health, and now you have the more uh, first responder type model of uh, mobile integrated networks mm-hmm. of, of visiting um, patients in the home. Um, and if you can imagine putting both specialties in the same ambulance, visiting very complex, very ill patients, that's a very powerful model. I think we need to get our pharmacists in the game. And I think we're, we're going to see some opportunities in um, bringing more collaborative relationships with um, clinical pharmacists, helping with uh, behavioral health integration. I'm glad you didn't say anything about mental health apps. Oh. That I see just all this magical thinking around, yeah, you know, we know this is a problem. We know apps are scalable, so we will we'll put this thing on somebody's phone and it will fix their the mental health problems. And I, I will be, just be really surprised if people can really address these issues without some kind of human touch. Yeah, and I think we've seen um, the same kind of apps in terms of adherence of medications, and eh, it doesn't go very far. Because mm-hmm. I've asked my patients, that, you know, did you try that app? Yeah, for two days, Doc. And right, that's, that's what it. I do with most apps on my phone. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, we are collaborating here with a third-party partner to do behavioral health integration remotely, where they will have a, a care manager who's assigned to the patient and work with them by video or by phone, but there still is a human involved. 
Um, and we are hoping to see if, if that can scale. Have you had any experience with that? Where it's the where there is behavioral health integration, except the psychiatrist and care manager, neither of whom are on site? No, but I have seen some really interesting best practices in some of our rural federally qualified health center mm-hmm. environments where they are uh, leveraging their academic relationships in the state. Um, and it's a, a very interesting model where they actually have a uh, behavioral health care coordinator who is strategically stationed right within the uh, the front doors of the practice. Mm-hmm. And they're just scooping up patients that they know are high risk, and then they are facilitating that then telehealth uh, interaction mm-hmm. with the remote psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, some interesting approaches to try to solve this issue of just not enough psychiatrists. I think we're also going to see more peer-related um, opportunities to connect patients mm-hmm. to help them navigate. So peer recovery specialists, community health workers will, I think, be part of the, the model mm-hmm. of the future to um, link what's outside of the exam room walls to, um, to the outside healthcare environment. I know that my wish list here at Allidade would be if we could get more providers to be willing to have some sort of mental health specialist on site, whether a social worker or a psychiatric nurse, uh, and then a relationship with an outside psychiatrist. Uh, wh- what's on your wish list for what we could be doing more of here? I totally wish the same. And, you know, if we could think about models where we can share those resources mm-hmm. and do a lot of boots on the ground training and help, I think one of the biggest barriers is just how do you integrate it into your daily work? And that's confusing mm-hmm. for, for a lot of us. Um, but to have that um, ability to link the behavioralists in the primary care setting side by side, seeing patients in tandem is enormously powerful. Uh, you know, doing the ESPER, doing the screenings, and then coming out and saying, this patient we really need to follow up with because I think there's some danger signs um, would be so compelling. And it will make our work as primary care physicians that much more efficient. And especially if they're tackling lifestyle issues at the same time, then that's the part of the, you hear so much that we want health coaches. We want health coaches. Um, And it it really extends beyond the nutrition and the exercise to sort of more the behavioral health hygiene for the patient or resilience. And I think that would be fantastic future state. Let's talk a little bit about opioids and how they play all into this, right? No secret that it's a huge issue in this country right now. not, not getting any better. There's, there's less uh, prescription opiate problems, but now everybody has switched over to fentanyl and overdose deaths. I believe it was last year for the first time uh, surpassed car rate deaths. Exactly. And uh, suboxone is something that we know helps. We know pays for itself many times over, reduces crime, um, reduces rates of HIV, hepatitis, extends life. But there's not a whole lot of it being prescribed. We, we know in this country that there are some barriers that you have to take an eight-hour course the, the sort of irony that anybody, any physician can give out opiates, but only a few can give out the treatments for opiates. What's your sense about why there's not more Suboxone being prescribed? I think we're coming across just the general stigma of addiction dis- disorders. Um, and frankly, I think uh, a lot of it is just uh, outright um, fear, discrimination in our healthcare system, a lot of misperception. But once, you know, I think as, as providers, we have uh, an appreciation of the neurobiological underpinnings of these conditions, and we say, okay, we need to treat this, um, but I don't have the infrastructure to treat it. 
and I don't have the time to do the surveillance that will be required, the pill counts, the uh, the contract. Uh, I think that's where there's enormous opportunity. This is, I mean, this is how I learned the language of addiction and and how to connect with my patients. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is to get somebody in your office and do that. But even ahead of that, we just need to do more screening. Primary care providers, less than 10% of us even do addiction screening or behavioral health screening. So have you seen Suboxone help patients? Absolutely. What's that been like? Incredibly transformative and far easier than trying to manage a brittle diabetic, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. So um, it really is, uh, I have a patient now who um, has been followed by my team for probably now close to 18 months, which is sort of that magic period, right? Um, we know that there is significant brain impact on um, on individuals who have addiction disorders. So we started him on Suboxone buprenorphine 18 months ago, and uh, he has graduated from the program. It's a year-long program, and he is now about to start a brand new job. Uh, he has a car. It's like the reverse blues song, right? He's Now he's got everything back. He's got his uh, girlfriend back. He's got a mm-hmm. job. He's got his car. And he's really looking forward to more in the future. And he's really dealing with the same problems like we all do. And so there is really no difference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually he's going to, he wants to come off of buprenorphine. It's just a matter of time. I was talking to a practice just uh, about two weeks ago and they were I was asking them what they do for substance abuse. Do they screen for it and test for it? And they said, oh, yeah, we, we do. We, um, we, we looked up a patient and we asked him if he's abusing his drugs and he said no. And so we looked into the, the PDMP, the prescription monitoring program, where you can look up and see if someone is using extra opiates. And we found out he was, so we fired him. Oh. And right, sort of, oh, oh no, no, that no. is the opportunity. That, that, that's not screening. That's not, that, that's just kicking somebody out. That's just pushing yeah. the problem down the road. That's. You know, that's basically sending a patient either simply to become somebody else's problem or, or worse, you know, buying illicit fentanyl. Um, I even had a provider who gives Suboxone and he's sort of halfway there, but also if somebody has a dirty urine, he fires them on the spot. So it's sort of like you're, you're getting there, but not, not, not all the way. So I have a challenge with that because do we fire our patients with hemoglobin A1Cs like 13? No. I think we need to help with that uh, referral network of behavioral health and addiction specialists. We have to think about leveraging uh, the opportunity to train um, those with those life experiences to be the peer recovery folks. Uh, And even having someone like that connected with your practice makes a huge difference. I have my peer recovery specialist on speed dial, and I know he knows how to connect. And so when I'm concerned, I put him on surveillance of certain individuals and, you know, it just makes life so much easier. Mm-hmm. It is possible. And I think that's what that's a message I want to give to my colleagues in primary care is you can do it. You just we just need to identify the resources and we need to get to know the resources and we have to allow them to come alongside in our practices to work with us because these patients are in our practices and what about places where there aren't resources to connect people to? And I think that's where the virtual uh, health and telehealth uh, opportunities are really going to play out. And it's going to be a learning curve. Uh, I think it's something that we really need to 
train um, on a large scale. Uh, um, and I think that's our opportunity in Allidade because, you know, we have resources within. And in our ACOs, we have these learning communities and this sort of stickiness of seeing practices evolve over time in value-based care. And I think this is going to be part of that, that movement. Do you see the same efforts around um, metrics in the behavioral health space? Yeah, that's a great question. So met- behavioral health metrics are almost all awful that there is so much subjectivity still in psychiatry that it is really hard to measure. In general, it's a tricky thing that a lot of psychiatry is, uh, when you get into measurement-based psychiatry, remains subjectivity pretending to be objectivity. And what I mean by that, even the PHQ-9, which is as good as we have as a screening and tracking measure, it is simply still asking patients questions and depending upon their answers. And you know, there's a lot of gray area in that, but we, we want something hard. You know, we want to be able to, to track and measure, but we're not that good at it yet. We don't actually understand the underlying etiology, the underlying cause of most psychiatric illnesses. Um, most of them are actually much more heterogeneous than, than we care to admit that not every person with schizophrenia uh, has the same underlying biology, and it's even the same with major depression. So, you know, how to measure it, how to track it, it's, it's, it's an area very much... Um, in need of some progress still. So what advice would you give to primary care physicians? I would say you're going to be having to deal with this, that the story I tell is of a resident I was supervising when I taught at a medical school who told me he was going to OBGYN, and I asked him why that, and he said, well, one of the criteria was I don't want anything to do with psychiatric patients. And what I always say is, you know, good luck with that, buddy, that other than pathology, that psychiatric patients are everywhere. You know, we are, we're all human. Almost all of us are going to have some sort of psychiatric or psychologic issue in our lives and be suffering. And as the provider, you are often going to be the one handling it, whatever medical or surgical specialty you're in. So I would try to lean into it. Don't, don't try to avoid it. I would say regarding medications, you don't need to be an expert in, in all of them. Pick a few from each class, a few antidepressants and get comfortable with them. Uh, The same would apply to the antipsychotic medications and have an algorithm for yourself uh, that you're comfortable with. So you know these medications in and out. You know the side effects. You know how to dose them. And then consider referring out if you get past the ones you're most comfortable with. Uh, I really would encourage you to look into Suboxone or somebody in your clinic having it. Um, We as providers have been the ones who got a lot of these patients addicted to it. uh, And we shouldn't run from it now. I think you'll find that, yes, some of these patients can be a handful, but that the recovery can be really gratifying Um, You know, you can always become a Suboxone prescriber and then stop if you don't like it. So I'd say just try it out and see how it feels. Yeah, and it's a great opportunity to find out what your resources are in the community and reach out to them and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking of doing this and I will bet that they will be great. I'll help you out. What do you need? So I think that's a a really, we have a very unique time in our healthcare system. Yeah. And I can't help but thinking that, um, and I think one of our colleagues said it best in New Jersey, is with all of this going on in um, accountable care and value-based work, uh, that this almost feels like the excitement that he had or that we had in, in healthcare when, um, when the HIV epidemic first hit. And it was scary and it was enormous, and, but it was exciting because now we had to mobilize. and We had to change the way we do things. 
And I think with behavioral health integration um, and uh, addressing the opioid crisis, this is a unique opportunity for all of us to mobilize. Well, great. Thanks for coming in, Leland. I enjoy working with you. I look forward to more of it. Thank you.